Hi, welcome to The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about journalism. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher. This week, the New York Times and its efforts once again to reinvent itself will be looking at a new innovation report. Then we turn to the White House, um, which will dominate the rest of the discussion this week. First, the notion of alternative facts, which has been floated by the press secretary and the rest of the White House staff. And then a fairly viral reaction to a column that I wrote about, um, it was an open letter to Donald Trump about how journalists should see the White House. And we're going to talk about what it's like to be on the receiving end of um, some serious trolling. Leading the effort this week, David Uberti. Senior Delacorte Fellow at CJR. Hello, David. Hey, Kyle. How's it going? I'm good. I'm good. Did you feel the heat of some of these CJR trolls? You know, I wasn't on the receiving end of many of them, but uh, I'm sure your email inbox was pretty full. It was, and not, not something I want to show my mother. <laughs> That's a, a lot of four-letter words, but it, it's, um, you know, people are engaged. It's good. They're engaged, and, you know, I think we're having a little bit more of a dialogue now than we were, say, a week ago, so... Yeah, we're going to hear from uh, one of our editors, Christy Chisholm, who wrote a piece about um, what it feels like to be on the receiving end of that. Yeah, and we'll have a really good discussion with Christy and what this reaction to that column of yours can tell us a little bit about audience engagement and what people think of journalism. All right, looking forward to it. Thanks for that introduction, Kyle, and thank you all for kicking it with us. Once again, I'm Dave Uberti, staff writer for Columbia Journalism Review, and I'm joined this week with some of my favorite guests from the newsroom, Pete Vernon, Delacorte Fellow for CGR. Pete, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. And returning to the show is Noska Renner, a Tau editor for Columbia Journalism Review. Noska, welcome back. Thank you, Dave. And we want to give a special shout out to our friends of the podcast in Germany who are eagerly clamoring for the next episode of The Kicker. This one goes out to you. First up, we want to start with the New York Times, the paper of record. Earlier this month, an internal newsroom group released a report charting out suggestions for the future of the newspaper and the media company. I'm quoting from the report here. They say, too often, digital progress has been accomplished through workarounds. Now we must tear apart the barriers. Over the course of this pretty comprehensive report, uh, this newsroom team makes a number of suggestions, moving the Times you know, more toward being a subscription-first business that makes some suggestions regarding having less incremental news stories to be a more visual news organization, to have a more conversational writing style, and to have some more reader engagement as well. A lot of different news organizations look to the New York Times as sort of a beacon, whether that's an editorial beacon or a strategic beacon. So this is certainly something that's been a hot topic in media circles insofar as the future of our industry is concerned. Noska, you, you had some interesting uh, observations from the report. What were your big takeaways? I thought it was interesting to see this come out uh, in the week following that announcement from Medium that they are moving away from a page view digital advertising business model. And the Times is basically, there's nothing super surprising in here, but they've sort of doubled down on the same thing to say that they have found since 2012 or so that their uh, consumer subscriber base has been better for revenue than advertising and they give similar reasons to Medium. Medium's post basically said that they felt that they had been led down the path of digital advertising and they wanted to rethink that and break away from that and feel that journalism needs a better business model. The Times basically says the same thing, although their solution is to go subscription-based. They say, our focus on subscribers sets us apart in crucial ways from many other media organizations. We are not trying to maximize clicks and sell low-margin advertising against them. We are not trying to win a page views arms race. 
We believe that the more sound business strategy for the Times is to provide journalism so strong that several million people around the world are willing to pay for it. This strategy is deeply in tune with our longtime values and our incentives point us toward journalistic excellence. I found that kind of funny because they're basically saying, oh, what a great coincidence. Our best source of revenue also happens to coincide with our journalistic ethics, <laughs> which I think is sort of the place where a lot of newspapers are now. Do you think it's where they should be? I think that they definitely should be moving away from advertising as a business model. I think that that has never made sense and there have always been criticisms of it. I think it may work very well for the Times, but it won't work for everybody. So we'll just have to wait and see how business models shape up. Right. And one of the interesting things that we've witnessed over the last several months is that the New York Times actually saw its fastest pace of subscription growth in the third quarter uh, that it has seen since unveiling a paywall in 2011. So they certainly are gaining steam in some respect in terms of getting people to, to subscribe and pay money for journalism. It'll be interesting to see how much of that was election and, and Trump coverage driven. I don't imagine they're going to be seeing 10,000 subscribers a day as they did on, on certain days in November. What this report says, especially in comparison to the report that was issued three years ago, uh, is that the time seems to be in a better place in terms of becoming a digital first operation, in terms of having a subscriber base that, although right now is not economically viable to support the newsroom as is. It's getting closer and closer to doubling subscribers 2015, which they set as a goal last year. They have right now 1.5 million digital subscribers and over a million print subscribers. So they're pretty solid in their foundation of people willing to pay for journalism. They're just trying to figure out ways to increase that number. I think you're right that they have a growing level of comfort. And you can see that in what they're saying about the content, which is that they want to continue to embrace the more digital first visual creative storytelling and move away from impactless stories, stories that are maybe more recognizable as being stories for the record, but which don't convey as much analysis or context as we seem to increasingly need. Right. The, the sort of who, what, why news story, the straightforward main bar that doesn't have that extra level of analysis. Right. I mean, I said. find it funny that they're moving away. Essentially, this report says they're moving away from the mottos that have defined the times, the paper of record, all the news that's fit to print. And now their their approach seems to be all the news that's fit to print if it's going to make people pay for it and get us more subscribers. It's not like we need to cover everything. We just need to cover things better than other people. But in fairness, too, I mean, I don't think most people are re relying on a newspaper to get their news right. stories a day. I mean, it's it's we've gotten to a point where you get it through Twitter, you hear it on cable news or the radio or whatever. There are, there are more timely methods of and distribution. And places to get it for free. Or, or places to get it for free as well. Yeah, I think they're trying to be more distinctive. The question is whether or not they can continue to compete in both the print and the digital realms. As Emily Bell wrote in a column when the original Innovation Report came out, the Times doesn't want to be a BuzzFeed in a seersucker suit. And I wonder how they will continue to stay true to their brand in the coming years. One of the things I would like to sort of compare and contrast this to is the Washington Post's emerging business model. When I read the phrase where they said they, they wouldn't be chasing page views, I, I sort of read that in the context of the Washington Post being very much a traffic juggernaut, particularly over the last year or two since Jeff Bezos has become the owner. They've really upped their pace of publication. They've made more granular forms of content. 
Unfortunately, we don't have subscription numbers for the Washington Post because it's a privately held organization. But, but we do know, according to their uh, recent report, that they're a profitable company this past year. Mm -hmm. um, so what they're doing is working for them. And yeah, I read this same implied criticism or contrasting of approaches in that you know, we're not in an arms race for page views. Part of that might be because the Post surpassed the Times in page views uh, earlier right. in 2016. No, nobody right. wants to talk about right. that. Right. Well, also, each of them is cornering. I mean, I'm also thinking about the Wall Street Journal, which has had like a, a huge paywall since the beginning of the Internet. And it seems like they're all cornering different parts of the market, which perhaps is unsurprising. And in my view, at least, left out to dry are the less elite publications such as USA Today or obviously the regional and metro newspapers who don't quite have the scale to compete online, but at the same time need a certain level of advertising revenue so they can't take a step back like the Times and go for a really high-end editorial product that right. uh, relies on subscription revenue. I mean, scale is something important to talk about. The Wall Street Journal has 1,500 reporters. The Times' newsroom has 1,300. And The Post, which publishes more pieces of content per day than The New York Times, has 750 with additions that they'll be making in the coming weeks. So it's interesting, like, yeah, there's no way that the Philadelphia Inquirer or even the Chicago Tribune is going to compete on a scale level with these three big papers. Rationalization from a lot of those places, you know, the Chicago Tribune and LA Times are a good example. They're both part of Tronk, which is a national newspaper chain. Tronk. And, and <laughs> Tronk. <laughs> Requisite Tronk joke. And their business rationale is to say, hey, we have all these different properties with high levels of reader support in Baltimore, Chicago, Los Angeles, et cetera. These are all large advertising markets, so we can actually tie them together for advertisers, sell our total audience across these titles, as opposed to individual audiences in each of these cities. So far, that hasn't played out so well, but I would hope to see them you know, approach that from a little bit more of an innovative standpoint going forward. And what that shows, I mean, we're talking about people taking different segments of the industry or different approaches and trying to sell themselves as distinctive in some ways, I think what it really says is that nobody has the answers yet, right? We're still dealing with an industry that is trying to recover from cratering print advertising revenues. And if you're the Washington Post or if you're the New York Times and you have 1.5 million digital subscribers, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel perhaps. But for most newspapers around the country, we don't have answers yet. And I think in some cases, it's almost easier to start something from scratch than it is to modify you know, a legacy business mm -hmm. structure. Last week, I visited Axios, which is a new startup from Jim Vandehei and some of the other brain trusts from Politico. And their basic business model is similar to that of Politico. We're going to get high-end native advertising and put it on our very slick platform. And we're going to complement that with an events business and then also a very premium high-end subscription product. So they need to give information to elites who can act on that information. So industry lobbyists, you know, financial elites, bankers, and what have you. They can sell different subscriptions for $10,000, $100,000. And despite the fact that there might only be, you know, 100, 200, 500 people in the country who might use that and might think that's worthwhile, that's a useful business model. It's so surprising to me that there's another company starting in this vein because if there's Politico, I'm not sure how successful their Politico Pro has been. But then there was also Jessica Lessons, The Information. I'm sure those have been moderately successful, but how much more room is there 
Well, there's been premium subscription products for some time. You have Bloomberg as the obvious one in the business community. Then you've had National Journal in the past and other ones in politics. You're sort of seeing a fragmentation of this high-end market as well. The information focuses obviously very heavily on Silicon Valley. Right. Politico is deep into the policy weeds. In many cases, it covers federal agencies to an extent that many other news organizations don't have the bandwidth to do. And I think Axios is is trying to thread a somewhat different needle by focusing on collision points between, say, Silicon Valley and politics, collision points between the Trump administration and businesses and the decisions that, it, that they make. So I'm really, really interested to see them as they move forward. The guys that they have at the top of their organization, Jim Vandehei, Roy Schwartz, and Mike Allen, are very adept at leveraging a, a wide beltway network. So if anyone could figure that out, I would expect them to be the right people to do so. This might be the nerdy media watcher in me, but I... Nerd? Find, <laughs> uh, I've, yeah, this is all fascinating, right? Like, as we're sitting here talking about some of the premium players like Axios or the big time papers like The Times and The Post, it's just going to be fascinating to see what these places look like in five or ten years. And what or how much Facebook ends up paying to yeah, publishers the in, the room. In, in, in another five years. As Kyle said, we're very lucky ourselves to be working at a nonprofit. <laughs> Moving on to alternative facts, we wanted to bring on a special guest for this segment, making her kicker debut, CJR senior editor and fellow Brooklyn-based journalist, Christy Chisholm. <laughs> Christy, welcome to The Kicker. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for kicking it with us. I'm most proud of my, my Brooklyn-based title. Always. On Saturday night, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer, on his first full day on the job, unleashed a diatribe from the White House briefing room calling into question the media's reporting on Trump's underwhelming inaugural crowds. He essentially called some of the news reports deliberately false reporting. Obviously, this came as hundreds of thousands of people marched in Washington and elsewhere to protest Trump. And then on Sunday on NBC's Meet the Press, Kellyanne Conway, who is Trump's campaign strategist and now a lead TV spin doctor, said that Sean Spicer was merely giving, quote, alternative facts on that account. This immediately sent my antenna up. I wrote a column for CJR.org this morning, which was co-published in the New York Daily News. And it basically, to me, smelled like more than a whiff of propaganda. Nasca, am I pulling my hair out for no reason? I think it's arguably propaganda. I think there's also something to be learned from a lot of propaganda in terms of what it's trying to say. The idea of alternative facts for any rational person who believes in objective truth is absurd, of course. But there's a large swath of the population who has felt alienated and disenfranchised by having facts thrown at them. I mean, I think Sean Spicer communicated this today in his second press conference when he said that Trump, Trump is not focused so much on statistics as on how the American people are doing as a whole. And that's incredibly indicative to me of the entire Trump administration's attitude toward this. They're really trying to appeal to people's emotional alienation from national politics, and it's really working. And I think until the press starts to acknowledge that in their coverage of this kind of thing, we're going to be running up against this like rationality versus irrationality, yeah. and it's going to feel like we're just all crazy. I think the point that Nausicaa makes is really interesting, because effectively what the Trump administration is doing is valuing emotion over logic. And I'm not necessarily even saying that that on um, its surface is altogether a bad thing. I think there is something to learn from that. 
there's some thread of truth in the narrative that that they're telling, right? Like alternative facts is a bullshit term. If I can say bullshit on the podcast, then I just said it. It's a bullshit term. Call it crying wolf, you know, or call it like lying, you know, ask, lying or asking for an alternate reality. It's like an alternative narrative rather than alternative facts. It is an alternative narrative. And there is something to what you said about people who are in whatever, not just the middle of the country, but there are people all throughout the country who are not experiencing the boom in the economy that we're talking about, not experiencing the uplift that so many of us have felt over the past eight years. So like you said, they hear numbers about jobs going up and they think, well, my job hasn't gone up. I'm still unemployed. My numbers are still down. And so I think that that's what they're speaking to. But there is still a danger between mixing that up with like the thing about logic and emotion is that both can exist at the same time. And you can't say that numbers aren't real. And here's an alternative way to view reality. Numbers are real. And there's another part of the story. And that's ultimately where journalists responsibility lie. Right. Everybody's trying to tell a story, right? Like narratives are important. And on any political campaign, you want to tell a story. Trump's story that America is not great and he's going to be the one to make it great again, obviously attracted a certain number of supporters and and put him in the White House. I think that this idea of alternative facts is one that for us as journalists and for others in the media really jumped out and we made all of us take up arms and say, no, like you can have your own opinions, you can spin things. We expect press secretaries and others on the communications team of any president to spin things and they always have, but you have to stay within the bounds of believability. And when you put up pictures next to each other, like photographic evidence and say, no, I don't see anything there. That doesn't look like anything to me uh, for our Westworld fans out there. You can't just say, this is not what's happening, even though what you're looking at is what's happening. No, but at the same time, I think that the Trump administration is basically removing any kind of common ground for the press and its administration to actually talk to each other. They're weaponizing basically an emotion that is felt by part of the population against the press the Trump administration isn't going to reestablish that common ground. I think it's journalists' jobs to do that. And I don't think we have to give up integrity, but I think we have to think about how it feels when let's put two images next to each other and say what's real. There's something way too insistent about that and almost condescending that I think the, the press needs to get rid of. But it's not the fact that Spicer is trying to spin a narrative. He was sharing something that's an easily disprovable lie. It's flying in the face of the very notion that there is an objective truth. I think that's why there was such an outpouring of condemnation from all corners of the media very aggressively and very immediately after that. It's not that presidents before haven't lied. It's that Trump makes a habit of doing so so casually in instances that are so easily disproven, another one being President Barack Obama's birthplace, that it almost just flies in the face of reality. You are almost, by saying this, insulting the intelligence of journalists and journalist readers by even offering up this counter narrative. It almost feels like a trap, you know, like it almost feels like. Yeah, like that like press conference is like luring them in because they claim something is true that is obviously untrue. You right. Know, I mean, this, this, set them up. this gets to the broader issue at hand, which is the Trump administration, by carrying out this peculiar PR strategy, is essentially daring journalists to fact check them in real time. So is there a way of actually doing that to say, hey, as journalists, 
this is what the actual objective truth is. The Trump administration is purposefully lying or misleading people. Is there a way of doing that without opening yourself up to a very unfair but very effective attack from the Trump administration saying, hey, you're the crooked media. You're being an oppositional political force. This is proof of what we've been saying all along. Well, what would you do, Dave, if you were in the press corps? I would write a column in the New York Daily News and condemn (laughs) it as a whiff of propaganda. (laughs) No, but what would you do in real time? I think Jonathan called it a really good thing at the press conference by asking the question. He basically said, and I'm paraphrasing here, would you ever purposely share misinformation from behind the podium? And Sean Spicer sort of danced around it and he tried to bait Carl a few times by saying, okay, well, what are you actually meaning? Like, what metrics are you looking at regarding viewership? It was it was like a lot of mumbo jumbo and he was certainly trying to walk Jonathan Carl onto a more precarious position where he could- Where attend- Jonathan Carl was the one who didn't have the numbers Where Jonathan ready. Carl didn't have the, num- the numbers ready and he was more vulnerable to attacks. So I think- you know, it's tough because you have to say that. You have to bring up the question. But at the same time, you got to know when to stop going after it, too. Well, and I think part of you mentioned like this peculiar strategy. And I do think there's a strategy because he what he was trying to get Carl to do was to say something aggressive. And right. Carl was saying, is there anything you'd like to retract? And then later in the, the press conference today, Spicer lamented the negative coverage that he sees every Whoa day on me. TV. Like, yeah. dude, you're representing the president of the United States. Every president feels like they're unfairly covered and that things are too negative. And if people would only understand what they really meant to be doing, that they wouldn't be getting this negative coverage. He also clearly jogged up his emotion for that yeah. part of it. Like, I he, mean, he was like verbally sounded much more frustrated and like sort of started rocking in this weird way. I also don't understand. I mean, I was watching Twitter on my second screen because I'm a millennial and I just don't (laughs) truly understand when reporters who are watching this live give Spicer points for picking it up after that and say, well, he actually had a pretty good performance after he, you know, blatantly lied again about crowd sizes. That's what it is. It's a performance. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I don't know. Like, the answer to, to go back to your question, Nausicaa, about like, what are you supposed to do if you're a journalist and you're in that situation and you have like a mouthpiece like that kind of trying to turn the tables on you? I And I don't know what the best answer is. I, I really don't. But maybe the answer is to not allow them to change the conversation, right? Because if he's saying, well, do you have the numbers? Because that's not what I said. And it's like, all you can do at that point is say, no, you put up these photos. You rec- The conversation was clearly about the photos. That was a lie. If you're talking about something broader, that's a different question. I don't know. I don't know. The only re- the only way to to counteract that is to not play to their hand. So over the weekend after that first Spicer appearance, a few people did make suggestions about what we can do when faced with this kind of stretching of the truth or deliberately misleading information. One is not televise the press conferences as CNN chose to do on Saturday. Uh, Another Jay Rosen from NYU suggested sending very bright interns to the press briefing room and assigning the veteran reporters to investigative teams. And another after Kellyanne Conway's performance on Meet the Press that was suggested by a number of people was don't have her on television anymore. Do any of those sound to you guys like reasonable suggestions? Can I tell you a quick story about the White House briefing room? Love stories. Please tell me stories. Especially about the White House briefing room. When I was with the Boston Globe as an intern, they did send me the intern to the White House briefing room. And I pulled a straight west wing and I sat in the chair not knowing that they're assigned seats. <laughs> it was the most embarrassing day of my internship. Did someone, did someone tap you on the shoulder? Someone tapped me on my shoulder. And, and Were they just nice? word to the wise, that's what happens when you send an intern to the briefing room. Well, apparently there are no assigned seats anymore. Right. 
So, you know, uh. you could go sit front and center in that AP seat. <laughs> if only I was an intern again. <laughs> um, to answer your question, though. Thanks, Mus. Uh, <laughs> to answer your question, unlike Dave, I don't think that taking them off the air is the solution. I think taking them off the air is just going to provide more fuel for the flames of we are being unfairly treated by the media. And moving on to our final segment. Last week, our fearless leader, Kyle Pope, editor and publisher, he wrote an open letter to President Trump on behalf of the United States Press Corps. He basically laid out in his mind how journalists should navigate this very difficult and precarious situation we're entering. And in an idealistic sense, what some of the ultimatums would be from a very aggressive, independent media. This post went viral in a way that I have not seen a post on our website go viral in my nearly three years at CGR. And we received a flurry of responses from all corners of the internet, particularly, and this was really invigorating to me at least, from a lot of people who wouldn't normally read CGR. I think that at CJR, you know, our audience is like, you know, journalists. Like, you know, we, you know, write for other journalists, we write for the media. That's kind of our role. And so we don't always hear from non-journalists. We've all worked in different newsrooms before. And, you know, I worked in local news for a long time um, in the alt-weekly world. The Alibi in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Little shout out to them. And, uh, and, you know, like it's different when you're working in that kind of newsroom, you hear from the public all the time. We don't really get that so much here because we're not talking to the whole spectrum of the citizenry. We're talking to other journalists who are pretty like-minded and we're trying to kind of serve as a guidepost in some way. And it's just, anyway, the conversation is very different. And so... It was interesting. to I, I listened to all of the voicemails that we got last week, and uh, and they were plentiful. And even more plentiful were all the emails and the comments that we received. And I think everything that we heard back from journalists was all pretty positive. You know, like, rah, rah. I think there were some actual literal attaboys. <laughs> um, there were, actually. <laughs> I made a note of them. But then from non-journalists, then that's where we started to get the, the, the mix, which I think better represents how a lot of the people in this country feel about the media. And that was, again, a mix between, like, you know, really supportive and then people who were obviously really angry, um, who do not trust the media. So were they just cursing at you? Yeah, there was Us. a lot of cursing. There was a lot of cursing. And since we're in, you know, it's is a dignified forum, and I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say. I won't repeat verbatim, but a lot of the people who called in and wrote in felt, you know, I think wrongly, but felt that we were intentionally being partisan and misleading the public and what we were choosing to write about. You know, you get a few emails, you get a few phone calls from people that are angry or outraged. And if that's like all that you get in like a larger pile of mainly supportive, you know, because maybe you think like, oh, maybe they're like a little crazy or maybe that's just them and they're angry about one specific thing. But you start getting like a good 50 percent of your responses if they start coming from people who are upset in some way. Again, people who feel strongly are more inclined to reach out, right? But when you start hearing back from people on those levels, you think there is an issue here that belongs to us. There's a problem that belongs to us, that we have a responsibility to try to fix. And they have a responsibility to try to fix it, too, because it's it's this, their spread of information, right? Like, it, it affects them. It's the information that they're receiving. 
about their country and about their world, right? But if they think the information that they're getting is all just, like, biased bullshit, then they're going to find some other place to get it. And maybe that other place to get it is going to be Donald Trump's tweets. One of the things that was really interesting to me, but just reading through people's responses, is sort of this idea that by publishing something that might be critical of a politician, you are, in effect, launching an end-all, be-all political attack that cannot be walked back. And that's really just something that's at odds with the way journalists think about their work. But the way readers read it and they interpret it, in a lot of senses, that could be the takeaway. And I think that's just a weird thing for journalists to think about. And we'll probably need to start thinking about a lot more, uh, especially in this partisan, polarized environment. It's as though they interpret it as propaganda rather than as providing information so that they can pick and choose and be well-informed. Exactly. Yeah. Here, we're very insulated in New York. Most of the people who I know here are not Trump supporters. Like, that's probably not a surprise to anybody listening. You know, other parts of the country, you go and you visit, and there's a much greater percentage of people who are Trump supporters. Some of the people who are Trump's, like, they are just, it's like they're number one targets when they're talking about, you know, quote unquote, liberal bias, fake news, unreliable sources, whatever. The first publications they go to are the New York Times, Washington Post. They just think they're crooked as all as could possibly be. Just so, so crooked. Yeah, I think think you're right that there's there's sometimes an obsessiveness that actually in some ways is slightly heartening that there are people who are spending that that much much. time like going through a particular reporter's stories I mean obviously it's totally aggressive and hostile and disappointing but at least they're they're researching (laughs) they're just researching things that we believe to be untrustworthy but they say the same thing about us so it puts you in a weird position so the, the job is how do we do our jobs in a way that makes them feel assured that we are reporting without bias, with consideration for other viewpoints. How do we do that job? It's again, like I said, it's on both of us, right? It's their responsibility, but it's our responsibility too. Part of the response that we have to make is to humanize ourselves, to humanize the press corps, because we are all real people. And Trump is trying to make us out as this like one giant conglomerate blob of Trump hating. New York people in a boardroom. Yeah. It's just the other, right? Like whatever that the other, like that's just what, when anytime you're trying to turn one group of people against another one, you just take that group of people and you put them all together and you just call them the other, whatever that is. It's and a powerful narrative. It's a very powerful narrative. It has started wars. <laughs> Basically, Maybe you know, every, every war. Every war, <laughs> right? And so that's a different kind of war that we're up against right now. And so this idea that, like, we are the media, like I said, like this, like, emergent organism in some way, we are no different than the field of doctors or teachers yeah. or like whatever <laughs> no i'm fewer just saying doctorates fewer doctors. <laughs> i mean well, okay there are differences fewer surgeries there are differences. i'm just saying like you take any group of people from another industry you don't assume that they're all exactly the same and they're all working in cahoots to <laughs> like, although the one know. thing that is true about most of us is that we mostly live in new york i think in the yeah. past month i've been more aware than i have since i've moved here at, at what a bizarre experience it is to live here it's it's kind of like being at summer camp or something where it <laughs> feels like this <laughs> totally consciously decided upon thing that I moved here. I have chosen this place where it's kind of OK to be eccentric and there's a lot of media people. And I explicitly moved here because that's where the media jobs are. Mm-hmm. And it is a slightly exclusionary in that we don't 
run into people and yeah. there is just like a geographic divide. Well, in our job specifically as as media reporters, you know, we are not going out and talking to people very often in other fields. The diversity of our interviews stretches from historians to reporters. So I think the reaction to this piece that came from so many different places, you know, it, it was striking and, and it was an interesting window into what I'm sure a ton of reporters who are out in the field deal with on a daily basis. One of the things I always take away from a lot of reader feedback, and I think this is increasingly so with Trump, and it's also in Trump's interest to reinforce this. I think journalists, in a lot of sense, we like to approach our jobs with this idea that there should be equality of opportunity in how you get good or bad media coverage. Everyone's equally able to be shown in a positive light or a negative light, depending on what they do on any, any given day or what they say. And I feel like a lot of times when I get reader feedback, the disconnect is this notion from their perspectives that there should be an equality of outcome, that there should be fairness between good and bad coverage, which really gives you very little room if you have someone who's demonstrably horrible, who does some terrible thing, <laughs> who purposely misleads, who has made a, a habit of racist or sexist remarks or what have you. How do you square that with the fact that people do have political views, they do want certain people to succeed or fail? On top of that, you have a president who's really trying to reinforce that latter point of view and try to use that to his own benefit. Putting so. it in terms of equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome is incredibly interesting. And I think journalists sort of have an obligation to stick with the equality of opportunity, but that is definitely going to be a challenge. And Sean Spicer asked for what you're saying today. He said, you know, we understand there are going to be days where we open the paper and see bad news, but when we do something well, we want to see us our, ourselves given credit. And I think he was talking from the perspective, not just as of the administration, but voicing the concerns that a lot of Trump supporters have. Honestly, though, if he wants that, he needs to not cry wolf so much. I know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It is a crying wolf thing. The whole like alternative rights thing or alternative <laughs> alternative facts. <laughs> all, all rights? <laughs> no. All, all facts. Never. All, all facts. facts. Oh, God. That's the next. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Hashtag all facts. No, but I do think, you know, going back to like trying to like figure out how to heal the rift that exists in this country in terms of like where the media is concerned, it should be a mission of larger news organizations to look for reporters who are stationed in divergent regions, divergent, divergent regions, yes, around the country. <laughs> you know, I've been a journalist for about 15 years now and about... 11 of those years were spent reporting in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is just a different part of the country. It doesn't get the same kind of coverage. And I've worked with some badass reporters in my time, some really excellent reporters who may never be able to come report out here, not that they would even necessarily want to, but just opportunities are different. And anyway, I'm just saying there is some very strong work that happens in other parts of the country and looking for people to tell those stories from those locations, <laughs> you know, people who are native to those areas, like looking for those voices. I just think that it's Yeah, they important. have a kind of knowledge yeah. that no one else has. Exactly. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I was joined in the studio this week by Nausicaa Renner, a Tau editor for Columbia Journalism Review. Thanks, Nausicaa. Thank you, Dave. And Pete Vernon, our Delacorte fellow from CGR and resident Lenny Dykstra fan. Oh, wow. Going way back. Thanks, Pete. And then also Christy Chisholm, senior editor for CJR and fellow Brooklyn-based journalist. Christy, thanks for making your kicker debut. Man, thanks for having me. 
And I'm Dave Uberti. I'm a staff writer for CJR. I want to direct you to our website, cjr.org, where you can sign up for a membership. It's 50 bucks a year. You get a couple print issues, plus a weekly subscriber newsletter from yours truly. Also, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your shows. Please leave us a review and any comments. Tweet at me, at David Uberti, or at CJR. We will try to hit you back with any and all comments. Thanks again for kicking it with us. We will see you next week.